Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day everyone, welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. This is our 100th episode, which um, our team are very excited about. We got to interview our founders in Robbo and Greg last edition, which was great to reflect on our seven-year journey. And I stopped and thought, who who could we grab to make this 100th podcast significant? And um, we are lucky enough to have Wallaby great Phil Kearns come to Cootamundra probably six months ago, Phil, and opened the Cootamundra Clubhouse. I got to play golf with Phil, and we're not going to talk about golf today because um, he towelled me up with um, two of my mates. And then um, Phil got to open our clubhouse. He spoke about the importance of community and grassroots footy, and we got to enjoy some real time with Phil around our kids and um, contributing to our coaching at the local club. Um, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce Phil Kearns to you all. Phil, as I say, is a, a Wallaby great with 67 test caps, 10 as captain to the Wallabies, 73 caps for the Waratahs, the New South Wales Waratahs. He's participated in three World Cup campaigns, winning 91 and 99 and um, is one of those few Aussie rugby players who can claim to have beaten New Zealand more times than New Zealand has beaten him. So, um, Phil, great to have you part of Profitable Farmer. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And that, that last, that's my proudest, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, rightly so. I don't How many other Aussies can actually claim that, Phil? I actually think there's only one. Um, Greg Clark, who's the guy I used to commentate with on Fox Sports, Clarky told me that I had the best record um, of any Wallaby against New Zealand. So if he says it, I'm happy to believe him, but I've never yeah, checked it. Lock that in. It's now official. We'll run with that for sure. <laughs> hey, um, before we get into talk about rugby leadership, the recent bid that you led um, and other things, I just wanted to start by asking firstly, what was it like or what is it like to have a daughter that kind of in some way follows your footsteps and represents the country. I think Matilda plays for the Stingrays and has represented Australia at the Olympics. Yeah, for the Stingers. Um, the Aussie Stingers are the, the our women's water polo team. Uh, so she competed in, in Tokyo uh, last year and uh, she's actually, as we speak, in Budapest. They've just competed in the World Championship. Um, and I've, I've got to say um, it gives as much, if not more, joy to, to have a child competing for, for your country is doing it myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I can still remember the day she was selected and got the phone call and tears all around. It was just an amazing day. Um, I actually was lucky enough. She played her first test um, in Budapest about three years ago now. And um, I flew over there um, to, to make sure I was there for a first test. And what a, what a great moment. Yeah, what an amazing moment. So I grew up playing rugby and idolising and looking up to you and Tim Horan, and it's amazing to watch my daughter, Millie, Camilla, look up to Matilda as she gets into her water polo career. So history repeats in some small way. Yeah, tell her to stick with it. It's a great sport. Yeah, absolutely. Rugby and water, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. And I'm sure if there was a fight between Tilly and I, I 
reckon I'd be on the losing side. <laughs> Phil, um, what did you make of the first test, England versus Australia, last week? Oh, you know, I was really proud of the, the guys. You know, I, I have come away over the last um, decade <laughs> being incredibly frustrated with the performance of the guys and and just particularly against sides like New Zealand, the easy points that we'd given away and, and capitulating when you needed strength. And, uh, gee, these guys got hit with the Quade Cooper thing first and then the Banks thing and and they didn't capitulate. And then they got, you know, Alan Alatoa's off and Swain send off and they just stuck at it. And uh, it showed enormous resilience and, uh, you know, they weren't going to give up. And at the, at the right times, um, the back end of that second half when we're under a lot of pressure and Michael Hooper stood up, the skipper, and just did an enormous job, a couple of steals on the England try line. And when your leader is doing that sort of stuff, then um, it paves the way for the rest of them. So it was, it was terrific to see. When was the last time you saw, you know, that depth of resilience like that in an Aussie game? Uh, it, it's it's been a while. I mean, when we we're in the UK last November and the guys played, there was a, a few difficulties over there, particularly refereeing, uh, and they just let the task go a little bit. You could see there'd been a big improvement, but they let the task go. You know, we've shown some resilience at times, but not not for any stretch of of not certainly not that depth of issue they had to face. Um, uh, and we've shown it intermittently, but you need to be showing it every game. And, and you know, if we thought last week was tough, this week's going to be unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, England England are a really big team. I mean, I'm standing up in the grandstand just going, wow, look at the size of these blokes. Like, you know, our guys aren't little, but their guys are real big. Um, so I, I thought it was a great effort. So for, so for our listeners, the Wallabies got over England last week and um, played most of the game with 14 men against 15 and 13 men against 15 in the dying minutes with three or four pretty significant injuries early in the process. So, yeah, an amazing win like we haven't seen perhaps in some time, which was great to watch. Phil, um, I want to talk before we get into your leadership of the Rugby World Cup bid that sees us enjoy the 2027 um, World Cup for Australia. I wanted to talk about how you reflect on the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of Australian rugby. What what has concerned you about how the code has tracked over that time? Uh, you know, it, it proves the old adage, a fish rots at the head. And if you don't have your administration right, literally from the chairman down, you are going to struggle as a code. I think that's that's the first thing. I think the second thing that's concerned me uh, is that we had forgotten our roots and uh, our roots is, um, or our country rugby, um, subbies rugby, club rugby in, in the capital cities, um, That that's the roots of our game. And... Um, I think in some ways we we lost our way in communicating with that grassroots. Um, 
But I think also that the expectations from from the grassroots of the game, right? And when it, when I'm from grassroots, I'm talking from state level all the way down. Um, uh, I think the clubs lost their way, the grassroots lost their way in terms of what was important to the game, and what's important to the game is community. And um, you know the the thought that rugby Australia is there to um, save the game with money is just ridiculous. Money, money isn't the solution to all problems, particularly in sport and particularly in in in, in rugby. It's the community that builds a club. Um, it's the community that runs the club, and in times of um, stress, it's the community that's got to drive the club out of that issue. Um, so what Rugby Australia has done at the moment, we just launched a pilot program six months ago, is um, I'm part of Mossman Rugby Club. I'm a patron there um, where I live. And about eight years ago, we were broke. We had two, two grade teams, one Colts team, and they wouldn't turn up half the time. And we hadn't won a premiership in 46 years. Um, so I hadn't won a first grade in 46 years and hadn't won any at grade in 50 years. So we, um, sorry, I hadn't won first grade in 50 years. So we, a guy came in by the name of Michael Flood and Flood, he was a country boy from Bathurst and he turned the club around. And it was everything from how to set the field up on, on club day, how to get sponsorship into the club, how do you make your barbecue profitable, how does everyone that's on the board um uh, of, of the club know what their roles and responsibilities are like all that sort of stuff just went right back to basics and you know a few years later and here we are today we've got um, seven grades we've got uh, three Colts teams we've won multiple premierships and we've got plenty of money and so what we're doing is taking that model and Flutie is going around to um, he started in the Shoot Shield Clubs West Parramatta um, Southern Districts and Newcastle We've seen what Parramatta's done this year when they beat Sydney University, one of the greatest days of my life when Parramatta did that. Um, they hadn't beaten Sydney Uni for 20, uh, 24 games. No, actually 24 years um, at University Oval. Um, and so those clubs are just going, wow, this is a great program. We're not giving them any money. They're building it themselves and the pride that that brings in the own your own community to build your own club like you guys did with your grandstand. I mean, fantastic. And going into the SCG and thieving those chairs from, from the SCG, that was that's pure genius. That, that builds a club. Uh, so, you know, it, it's helping the clubs to run better. Now he's hit um, Barker Old Boys and he's helping them. Um, and there's a bunch of other subbies clubs. So now we're in the process of creating more fluties. So Flutie's going and starting to train a bunch of other guys so we can get around the country and help clubs to help themselves. That's the essence of it. Phil, at our recent conference with our members, we had this global futurist and demographer, Simon Kustenmarker, speak, and he spoke about the importance of sport and how actually and quite literally in country towns it replaces the church because we don't often go to church anymore and that's when community used to happen and now community happens around country sport. What's your read on how important country sport is and country rugby is for local towns? Well, you know, I, I run a company called AV Jennings at the moment and um, 
exactly what we don't do is support the sport around our communities enough. And whether it be cricket or whether it be rugby or whatever it is, netball, um, you know, it's you've got to live your your values. And um, in in a community, a small community, that sporting thing becomes so important. And, and that's what we do. We build communities. And, and sport is the critical piece, particularly in, in this day and age where multicultural is, uh, multiculturalism is so strong that you're not going to get everyone that's a Christian and you're not going to get everyone that's a Hindu and you're not going to get everyone that's whatever religion um, is out there. So you need to bring them together somehow, and sport does that. Um, you know, the, the one thing about rugby, which I always talk about, which I, I think is quite different to most, most sports, it was built on respect. Um, that's why there's a place in the game for me because I'm a fat kid and, like, as an eight-year-old fat kid, I'm not going to get picked in the soccer team or the AFL team. That's that's not where I'm going to be. But in rugby, there's a place for me right up front there where all the brains are in the front row. That's where I want to be. So, um, and so whether you're tall or skinny or fat or slow or whatever it is, there's a place in the game for you. So you have to respect your teammate because they're doing a different job to the one that you're doing. Um, and at a certain time in the match, everyone's got a time to shine. And, and I think that's the difference with our game over others. And I think that's really reflective of community as well. Phil, you've recently led our World Cup or bid for the 2027 World Cup. What motivated you to do that and, and what was your role in that? Um, yeah, so I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say I, I, I led it. I was one of the leaders there. Um, so what? What? Um, there are a couple of things that sort of push them down that line. One is to help Australian rugby. Um, number one. Two uh, is is to there was well, one of the inducements is that Hamish McLennan and I were going to be travelling the world, visiting world rugby delegates from France to. Philippines to Georgia, wherever it may be, we'd be off traveling the world doing that. A little thing called COVID got in the way. Um, so we didn't go anywhere. Um, and the 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 final thing was to work with an amazing group of people. Um, the big board, um, I'll just drop a few names here, but John Howard, Sir Peter Cosgrove, Sir Rod Eddington was our chair. Um, so to say I led it when I've got Sir Rod Eddington as, you know, the chair of the bid board, um, um, Hamish McLennan is the chair of Australian Rugby, so he's on it, Olivia Worth from Qantas, Elizabeth Gaines from um, Fortescue, um, uh, John Coates, um, you know, an incredible group of people, Gary Eller and, and John Ells. So to work with the, that calibre of people and to learn from them was amazing. Um, and then the operational guys that, that I was closest with um, who had different expertise from operations, politics and law, um, uh, you know, media and, and marketing, there was only a small group of sort of five of us that, that really drove it, um, supported by this bid board. So, so everyone, um, just as I was saying about rugby before, it was like a real rugby team because everyone had their chance to lead and everyone had to lead at a certain time during the bid process. Um, 
you know, there was a time when we were doing our launches and at that time certainly I had a role in it, but it was the, you know, Liz that drove marketing and um, that you really had to be on the top of the game around that sort of piece. And when we were dealing with the politicians, we had a guy, Anthony French, that actually knows how to communicate with that group of people. So everyone had their chance to shine. Um, so it was pretty, it was something quite special and I'm really proud of being part of. What can that mean for Australia and Australian rugby, Phil? Um, well, for Australia, it, it means, um, I'll, I'll put it from a sporting or a rugby context first. We've got England here now. Um, in 2025, we'll have the British Lions. Um, in 2027, we've got the Rugby World Cup. In 2029, we've got the Women's Rugby World Cup. In 32, we've got the Sevens at the Olympics. Um, all being here, so it's, an, it's a magic pathway for Australian rugby to, to be part of. And, um, you know, I was up coaching some some kids in Brisbane, girls and boys, a little while ago, and the front row of girls um, in this sort of under-14s, 15s group said, we're going to be the front row in 2029. Now, that just warms the cockles of your heart that girls have got that ambition to be playing in a Rugby World Cup, which is fantastic. Never happened in my day, and I'm glad it's happening now. Um, so, so it means that I think the second thing it means is there will be a windfall for a windfall for Australian rugby. Um, and between the British Lions and and the Rugby World Cup, um, rugby will be in pretty good financial shape after those two things. After what's been an incredibly dire period, and I think the third thing that it means for Australia generally is rugby all around the country. Um, we've got now got five amazing venues. It'll be played in about eight to ten venues, but we've got five incredible ones in each capital city. And these capital cities, these states have to compete now to get our product in there. They've built these stadiums. They need our product. They want our product. They love our product because people um, travel to see it and they spend a lot of money. Um, the second part of that is it'll bring $2.5 billion to the Australian economy. Um, at, a, at a critical time that, that we need it. We're all about to be going through tough times and around 27, hopefully, we're coming out of it and we'll need, we'll need that. Um, so that's important. Two and a half, um, 240,000 visitors at least will be coming to Australia. Uh, in rugby, they stay for longer. They'll, they'll be here an average 17 days and that's, that's a long period of time um, in, in tourism terms. So there's a lot to look forward to and there's a lot that this Rugby World Cup brings for the country. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear. Phil, um, if you reflect back on your career, something you've debuted in 89, um, how do you remember those World Cup moments running on, playing, representing your nation? Um, and how does it feel knowing that that opportunity is going to come again to some local Aussies in coming years? Yeah, you know, I never played in a home World Cup, so I don't really know how special that is apart from going to the games of the one in, in 2003. I guess in, in, in 1991, um, we, we had our own ambition as a team to be the best team in the world, um, and that's what probably every team goes into the World Cup with, and, and so we had that ambition. We didn't really understand how important it was um, for the country. Um and we didn't really know that importance until we had the ticker tape parade in, in up George Street in Sydney. We had absolutely no, and, and in fact, 
Nick Griner rang, who was the premier at the time of New South Wales, rang Nick Far Jones and said, we're going to have this ticker tape parade. And Nick Far Jones begged him not to have a ticker tape parade. He actually, he said, he said, Nick, like no one's going to turn up. Like we're going to be going up George Street and there'll be tumbleweeds going down the street. Like we had literally that was the conversation they had. And the reality was something very different and we were just blown away by that. And I think it wasn't till then that we understood the significance that it had for the country. And, uh, you know, to be, we, we were getting faxes from all around the country, you know, regional areas, cities, whatever it may be. And that was sort of great, but it wasn't until we got home and could feel it and touch it and see it that we realised the importance of it. Um, and then 99, obviously, we we had a taste of that and knew it was going to, what it meant. Um, and then in 2003, whilst I didn't play, it was really the first mass migration of people to a, to a World Cup. Um, and when you look up in the the at the final and you look up in the grandstand, sure, they were mostly white and gold jerseys, but there were blue jerseys and green jerseys and red jerseys, that, you know, all the different colours of the major nations were there. And, you know, the what it meant to the world was incredible. And other other World Cups have now tried to emulate that, and they have. And people see it's the third biggest sporting event in the world. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is the third biggest sporting event behind the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. No, so. no, Olympics and soccer, soccer World Cup. Yeah, right. Phil, um, what does what's it like running on against the Wallabies? Sorry, against the All Blacks. They've been, you know, in the last fifteen years, sort of the pin-up team, and I think they're regarded as one of the best teams of any code in the world at the moment. What, what's it like to run on and front up against Sean Fitzpatrick and blokes like that in the black? Um, I mean, what a buzz. I mean, that's what you play for. You, you play to pitch yourself against the best. You, you, it's why they call it a test match. You're testing yourself against a mighty opposition and they were absolutely the mightiest and, and, uh, the consistency of performance they have across centuries is unrivaled in 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 any code. Um, you know, maybe the closest you could get was Man United in their um, halcyon period, but you know, even that was fifteen years. It wasn't the hundred odd years that the All Blacks have had. Um, so, I, I guess to me, a little bit in, in certainly my first test in in eighty nine, it was all just a blur. And you're a young kid, you're 20 years of age or 20, whatever I was, 21 years of age, and you're just going out there and doing your thing. And, you know, you don't, sometimes you don't understand the significance of what's actually going on out there. Oh, just go out and play, yeah, no problem, is sort of the attitude. But as you get to the back end of the career, you actually do start to understand that significance a little bit, a little bit more. And, um, but, you know, Sean, Sean was a great rival. Um, we're actually good mates now. Um, I had a couple of beers with him in, in uh, London in, in May and then before that in uh, November when we were over there in, in, with the World Rugby guys. Um, you know, he's, he's lived over there in London for a long, long time, but we text each other during matches sometimes and all this sort of stuff. So, um, you know, we're, we're mates and that's what the thing about rugby is is about and something that I'm sure a lot of other codes don't have. Captaining back then, Phil, what was your approach to leadership um, of men back then in that captaincy role? I remember very clearly it was uh, 1992 and we were playing 
Um, we're on tour of Ireland and Wales, and Michael Liner was the skipper of our tour. He got injured and had to go home. And Bob Dwyer um, called me into the, his room and said, your skipper. And I sort of went, shit. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said to me, I'll, I'll never forget it. He, he said to me, I want you to be you. He said, I picked you because of the way you train, the way you are around the team, um, the way you play the game. He said, just do more of that. Um, so essentially, you know, he's just saying, be genuine, be yourself um, and, and lead through your actions. And uh, so that's what I've tried to do. Um, Bob was a great mentor um, to a number of players and, and I'm still very close to Bob and uh, he's a terrific bloke and he, he taught me a, a bunch of lessons in, in life and I think as, as men or boys, we need those mentors along the way to give us some direction and Bob certainly gave me great direction and now in my corporate life, I, I use the same, um, have the same attitude. What are some of those leadership philosophies you take from sport and apply to business now, Phil? Oh, I think I think there's a bunch of them. Certainly, that one is is really the most. Just be yourself. People people are very astute and can pick a fake um, very very quickly. So don't try and be Attila the Hun if you're not, and you know yell and scream and rant at people around the place. They'll they'll find you out. And similarly, if you're a bit of a bastard, then don't try and be something you're not. Be a bastard, and they might like you or hate you, but but you're being yourself. So I think being yourself is is really important. Being authentic. Um, is really important. Um, I think showing people respect uh, in the business is, is critical, no matter what role they're in. Um, and again, that's a that's a rugby philosophy. Um, you know, success uh, means different things to different people. For people in the corporate world, success might be a profit number or a return on equity number or a share price or whatever it might be. Um, but for other people in the business, success is putting three meals on the table and being able to pay their mortgage. And if that's your version of success, I'm all for it. And my job as a CEO of an organisation is to help you achieve your goals, help you achieve your success. And if that's your level, of your your version of success, that's my job is to try and help you get there. Um, so I think that's the second thing. And, and I think probably the third thing was another thing that... Um, you know, Bob Dwyer talked about um, with, with the team, and I remember it very clearly before a series against the All Blacks in 93, he said, don't um, don't worry about the scoreboard. Don't look at the scoreboard. Just do your job. And when you end, end at 80 minutes, you'll look up and you'll see that Australia has more points than New Zealand. So just do your job and focus on that and don't worry about anything else. And essentially, that's what we did through that series. And he was right. We looked up in two of those three tests and we were we were more points than New Zealand were. And, you know, so often we get tied up and what's my share price every day or how much revenue do we bring in today? Well, that's not the important thing. That'll all happen if you get your focus right and your attention right, your energy, energy right. Who are some of the... Um leaders that you have worked with or, or been on a sporting field with who you most respect and admire? You mentioned Bob Dwyer. Are there others? Oh, you know, it, it's very um, hard to go past people like Sir Peter Cosgrove, um, you know, having known him for probably 
20, 25 years now and just seeing what he's achieved throughout his life and the focus that he brings to it. Um, and and I, I think the common sense is just so important. Good judgment and common sense, you know, really go together. And, and so Rod Eddington leading um, this World Cup bid, you know, was just like that. You know, so he wouldn't say too much, but when he did, you'd listen. Um, and it was always right. Um, you know, we'd go be going into a certain meeting and we'd be talking about what we're going to do in this meeting and he'd just come out with some pearl of wisdom um, and you go, wow, that's actually that just happened in that meeting. What Sir Rod said was going to happen actually happened. Um, so so those, those guys I admire um, enormously, uh, real, really good people. And I guess I've been lucky enough to work with, with um, uh, a lady by the name of Christine McLaughlin, and she was our chairman of our board when I was on the uh, board of venues in New South Wales. And uh, just a woman of real integrity. She's a country woman uh, as well. Um, she's the current chair of Suncorp. And, uh, you know, she's a really good person with great values. And, um, you know, her, her no-nonsense manner is something you can, you can learn from. Thanks, Phil. So I'm mindful you've got to get to a goddaughter's <laughs> birthday party shortly. One more question, if I could. Yeah, no problem. Um, I asked got about quite, 10. We've got 10 minutes. I can right, perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'll save that question then. Um, what is your role now? I think you mentioned your CEO to AV Jennings and that that project is now all about building communities across Australia. What's your role and what's the focus of, of your role with that business? I think uh, we're, we're a 90-year-old business. Um, it's actually our 90th birthday this year. And just because you're old, it doesn't mean you can't touch your toes and be agile. And that's what we've, we've, we've become a little bit decrepit and uh, we're going to get out there and we're going to be stretching and we're going to make ourselves a, a young, youthful, you know, you can be a youthful 90. You can be one of those 90-year-olds that goes parachuting out of an aeroplane and, you know, they always make the news, the 90-year-old the, the jumping out of planes. So that's, that's what we can do and really be innovative. Despite the age of our company, which is something to be proud of, we've, we've got to act young. So, so um, taking that ethos is really important and driving a culture and innovation and, and being a little bit different is something that, that we, we're going to do. Um, you know, we see a great trend in, in regional investment and so we're looking certainly in the regional areas of New South Wales um, and, uh, and a little bit in Victoria to, to um, do a lot more out there. So we're looking around places where there's employment um, and infrastructure, you know, a place like Orange and Bathurst and Goulburn and Mudgee and Lithgow and these sort of places is, is where, where we're looking. And, um, and, and there'll be others um, around now as a, as a strong area. Um, so we, that, that's something new for us. So let's go and explore those areas and see what we can do that's successful. And, you know, we certainly know what we're doing in terms of developing land. That's what we've done for 90 years. That's nothing new. But going to a new area is something which I think is quite exciting. So reinvigorating the business and having new technology, particularly in this the days of, you know, when the environment is so important to us all and sustainability is critical, um, we're going to be putting a lot of effort into that uh, as well. So, um 
what do I know about levelling off a piece of dirt and and putting a house on it? Nothing. Um, but, you know, I've got to drive the culture and the values of the business. I've got to find my successor um, at some point in time. It's not tomorrow, but, you know, we're going to find a successor um, and and really drive that culture of the business. That's That's my job. So just on that, and turning this back to our farmers, we've got a lot of members who are multi-generational. It might be that there's at least two generations working in the business. And often there's that tension between the older generation and the younger generation. Um, your comment there about acting young, what would your comment be perhaps to the older generation of a farming family who's getting challenged by the younger generation to to take on technology, to, to go a bit harder, to take on a few risks. Some of these older generation have probably remember the 20% interest rates and those things. How, how does a farm or a business um, shift its culture to focus more on something that might be more agile? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> In lots of ways, I wish I was. Um, so I, I, you know, from a technical perspective, I, I, I can't comment on that. But um, from a, the youth will always win out, and the reason why is because us old people die. I mean, I, I look now at my kids and their use of technology. Um, so my kids are what eighteen to twenty-four, four of them, and that's going to outlive me. And and they, in terms of what they can do and with, with that technology, they are so much more productive than I am. Um, I see the guys that I was, I was working with on the World Cup bid who are sort of in their 30s mostly and what they can get through on their computer is just mind-blowing and what the information that they can absorb through their phone and computer and other things I, I just get blown away by. So they will win in the end. But at the same time, they can't lose sight that we've been around um, in terms of old people. We've been around. And so for me to ignore what Sir Rod Eddington is telling me in a meeting would just be stupid. And the youth have to understand that to not listen to us is stupid. Um, so we both have to sort of mould our ways a little bit. But when it comes to the technology piece, um, you know, us, us oldies have to soften our stance a little bit and understand that these guys are actually pretty good and they know their stuff. Um, there's some life lessons we can teach them and guide them on, but the technology will shine through in, in the end. And, um, yeah, so make make way for them. Make way for them. And how important is it, Phil, to have that deep sense of core values underpinning a business. It's another thing we focus on with our farming families. Often the values, are, you know, they're, they're, they might be spoken about, but they're not in words on a wall and they're not underpinning sort of on-farm decisions. How important is it in a business like AV Jennings or for the Wallabies or the All Blacks to, to have a really deep connection with and, and make decisions and lead around a strong set of core values? Uh, it's it's the reason for your being. And, you know, if you are a farming family and you, and you have those values, then I'd suggest you do write them on a piece of paper and you do stick them on the wall. I, I assume most farmers have a have an office, have a desk that they sit out where they've got to do their, their stuff, their planning and whatever, and ordering and all, all this sort of thing. Put something up. 
um, create a point of difference for yourself and your family and make it make it obvious to your family, these are our values, these are the way we're going to run our business by, we're going to run our farm by. Um, and I, I don't think you should be ashamed of that. In fact, I think you should be incredibly proud of that, that, that you know what you, you live for and you know what your values are. I think, I think that's critical. And, you know, it might sound a little glib, but, but you know, in the Wallabies we would often talk about, you know, the people of the bush that are watching this game tonight that we're going to be playing in. You've got to, you've got to put in for them. They're the ones that are supporting us that you we can give a lift by, by winning this test match tonight. And really it was often talked about and how important that, that was. So, um, you know, that values piece is is, is critical. Um, and there's been many a business that's lost its way because it's lost its values. Thanks, Phil. Great comment. So my last question to you is um, one I asked for other people that I do interview. What would you say to a younger you? Sitting back and reflecting, if you got to say something to that 22-year-old wallaby, what would you say to him? Jeez, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to to be guided, um, and, and I've said this to, to my kids as, as I um, said before, but be yourself. Um, don't try and be something that you're not. There, there's a, a, a great book by a lady called Brene Brown, and she's quite a famous person, uh, in the TED Talk world and a bunch of other worlds, and and she talks about the difference between belonging and fitting in. And fitting in is where you reshape yourself to be what others want you to be, whereas belonging is actually people wanting to be around you because who you are. And and I think that's really important and and sort of something that I try and live by. And 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 if I was talking to a younger me, I'd I'd tell them that, and I say it to my kids too, by the way. Um, I'm not sure if they've listened to me yet, but at some point in their life we'll find out if they have. Thanks, Phil. Um, really appreciate you being part of our 100th episode and um, for sharing a bit of your story. I hope in some small way this acknowledges the impact you've had on the Wallabies, um, on your career, on ARU, on our recent 2027 and 2029 Rugby World Cup bid um, on your role in leadership in sport, in charity and in business. Um, it's been wonderful to connect with you again and thank you sincerely for your time. No, it's a pleasure, Jeremy. And I think I'm going to be seeing you in um, October at the golf tournament out there in uh, in, in Cooter. So I'm looking yeah. forward to coming out there. I'm bringing my boys and my wife out and we're all going to smack a ball around and help you guys raise some money. Yeah, look forward to it. And great to have you connected again to the Cooter Rugby Club. Love Cooter. I should have had my hat on. I've got my hat here. I should have had my Cooter rugby hat on. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. And so there you have it, ladies and gents, a brief connection and discussion with the great Phil Kearns, a hero of mine growing up. Um, as I said, an illustrious career with the Wallabies. I know a lot of us might be footy players, um, Aussie rules fans or soccer fans or netball fans, but... Um, I don't think it matters which code you play. I think when you get to connect with um, people who've achieved at the level that Phil Kearns has um, in whatever vocation, it's a real privilege and an honour. Um, just to round that out, Phil has made a significant contribution to Australian rugby, to this upcoming World Cup campaign. 
Um, more recently, in 2017, he received an Order of Australia for his services to community through charity, business and sport. And um, in 2018, was ducted into the Australian Rugby Union Hall of Fame. So um, a privilege to hang out with Phil tonight. Um and to have some time with him. And as he said, look forward to connecting with him again when he gets down and continues to make grassroots footy and regional communities very much part of um, his um, intent and the impact that he hopes to have on Australian rugby. Thank you for listening. Take care. Um, and thank you for being part of our 100th episode. It's a privilege for us, something we're proud of, and we look forward to the next 100. Take care, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.